You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to 30 to Curtain, a Center Theatre Group podcast. As one of the country's most influential nonprofit theatre companies, we produce and present the work of most of the leading theatre artists of our time. We do this across all three of our stages, the Amundsen Theatre, the Mark Taper Forum, and the Kirk Douglas Theatre, as well as in educational outreach and community programs. I'm Michael Ritchie, Artistic Director of the Center Theatre Group. For each episode of this podcast, we'll talk with some of these talented artists from both on and off the stage so that you can learn more about them, their process, and their work before arriving at the theatre. Our guest on this podcast is Luis Valdez, founder and artistic director of El Teatro Campesino, a legendary theatre artist who has a storied history with Center Theatre Group, including as the writer and director of Zoot Suit, which made its world premiere at the Mark Taper Forum in 1978 and had a celebrated revival in 2017 as part of our 50th anniversary season. Luis returns to the taper this season with his latest play, Valley of the Heart, which is on stage here October 30 through December 9, 2018. Valley of the Heart is an epic play that examines the difficult divide between America's ideals and its actions set against the backdrop of World War II. Like Zoot Suit, it's set here in California and it confronts a troubling chapter in our country's history. In this case, the internment of Japanese Americans. I hope you enjoy this conversation and I look forward to seeing you at the theater. First of all, uh, welcome, Louise. Welcome back. Welcome back home. Uh, it's good to have you here. It's great to be back home. Thank you very much. Uh, let's start with uh, where we are right now with this show, and then we'll go back and talk about uh, building it. We're in performances. We just started previews, so we're, we've had three or four performances. We uh, have rehearsals during the day. Uh, this is a big show to get on the stage. Uh, how's it been going so far? Well, tremendously uh, in in a creative sense, you know, it uh, technically it's a huge challenge because we've got a lot of cues. We've got sound cues, we've got projections, of course, dramatic action, but moving stages, you know, two platforms. So all of that really complicates the the tech part of our production. The human part we more or less laid out in the rehearsal room. But now that we've been on stage, uh, it's been a challenge to try to coordinate all those elements. As far as that's concerned, it also includes the audience to include their responses and, and their reactions. So it's all a process. We're in the middle of it. We're not finished with that yet. We're, I'm still making cuts, actually, to tighten and compress. I believe that uh, the two operative principles in drama are compression and tension, the same two architectural principles that define bridges. You compress or you, you, you use tension. And so in our case, compression means tightening the show completely scene to scene. And the tension means maintaining that really taut quality that you want from scene to scene and from act to act. So that's what we're working on now. That's, that's the purpose of previews, it seems to me, in relation to the audience, but also the actors in relation to everything else, the props, the, the scenery, the projections, and all of that's going real well. I've enjoyed the creative process. Yeah, I have to say, coming in for the first preview, which is always the, um, the most, I'd say, tense moment uh, in, in the entire process, is that first preview where 
you've been in the rehearsal room for a number of weeks, you've worked out things on taped floors, you've done some technical rehearsals on the stage, but when the lights go down on that first preview and the audience is there, all the stakes rise and you're still in a working process. You're not showing a finished product. So you're both catching reactions from the audience, um, things you already know beforehand that you want to change or fix or, or try, but also getting the interplay. And for the actors as well, um, they're finding out what the audience does to the show. They've been in a vacuum. Uh, so how do you sit in the back of the theater during first, second, third preview and, and assess? What are the things you're looking for? Obviously, problem on the stage, fix that. With the audience, though, what do they tell you? They tell me that uh, they they like to laugh and they like to cry. I mean, why do people come to the theater? That definition goes all the way back to Aristotle, right? We, we, we come to purge. We come for a certain kind of catharsis. Humor can do that, but uh, so can tragedy. So can sad things. And uh, it's been our experience with this play that even grown men have cried sitting there as part of the audience. And that's okay, quite frankly. Uh, it's okay that people feel that the pain on stage uh, somehow e evokes the pain in their lives. We all have carried that kind of pain and we all need to let it out. And that's what the function, the most basic function of the theater is. It's a cleansing device, if you will. We come to, to be freed of our anxieties and of our fears and, and, and to have our hopes also reinforced. But in this case, I, I sit up there in the audience as two people. I'm a playwright and a director. And so uh, fortunately, I have the cooperation of my associate director, who happens to be my son. He's really a co-director uh, who has his eye directly on, on all the mechanics of the staging and gives me the freedom to really react also as a playwright. I'm looking at the text. I'm looking at scenes. And he's not bad with actors as well. He knows how to coordinate scenes. So it's all been a very, very intense uh, and personal process. Uh, uh, I continue to try to condense this play, wondering how much do people know, need to know, in order to understand and react to the story. The story, as far as the period is concerned, is familiar. There have been a lot of movies about World War II and a number of plays about the period, even about the Japanese-American experience. Uh, but the fact is, this is, I hope, a new take. This brings it a, into a different perspective because of the two families. And as I said before, the if you can contrast the Japanese-American experience with the Mexican-American experience, what, what emerges is the American experience. And I think that's the abstraction we're all looking for. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, life and career. Um, you are, as you said, both a director and a playwright. Uh, you're a filmmaker. You're one of the founders uh, and the current artistic director of El Teatro Campesino. You're a union organizer. Uh, how did this, I won't even say career, how did this life start, this, this life of activism, writing, art? What was the spur for you? I think in a lot of instances in our lives, uh, life takes over and defines it for you. Your conditions uh, define what you are going to do with your life. In my case, um, I was six years old, uh, 1946, uh, on, a, on a migrant path with my family after we had owned a ranch that I thought was ours but actually belonged to a Japanese farmer. Uh, my father took it over in 1941 in the Delano area. I thought that, that we had land, uh, but by the time I was five, 
And certainly by the time I was six, I realized it wasn't ours at all. It wasn't, it was leased and the army really owned it. And, but it had belonged to a Japanese American farmer. So by the time I'm six, I'm realizing the world is very different than I thought it was. And uh, what happened to the Japanese American farmer, I don't know. We don't know what happened to the family, but we were on the migrant path. And so we're touring the state. We used to come up to San Jose and Santa Rosa and all those areas, make the big round. We come down to San Fernando, to the citrus groves. So I got to see the state, you know, from the ground level. Uh, but uh, among those experiences was, was the feeling that uh, we're wandering when we had had roots and that uh, we had been better off during the war than we were after the war. And I asked my brother what happened, and he wouldn't explain to me. I had an older brother. He said, uh, well, it was the war, you know, and, and it's dad's fault. He lost the ranch. My older brother blamed my dad. But it had been the high point of my dad's life to have taken over this ranch at the age of 28. And uh, that became the character of Benjamin in Valley of the Heart. Uh, it's really a tribute to my dad because it was a turning point for our whole life. And even though we lost it, I always kept that memory that we were better than migrant workers. So in 1946, uh, we're in a big cotton camp and uh, picking cotton. And the cotton season is over. We can't move on because my dad's pickup had broken down. It's up on blocks. And uh, we were living from hand to mouth, day to day. And um, one day I almost drowned one morning and my mother got very concerned that I'd almost drowned in the San Joaquin Delta. And so she said, you and your brother better go to school. There was a yellow bus that used to come into the camp. And so we climbed on, knowing that we weren't going to be there for very long. But I used to take my lunch in a little brown paper sack, which was a rarity because there were still wartime shortages in 1946. But my mom used to put the tacos in there, and that's where we'd go to... Uh, to school, fish tacos, you know, before they were tender. And, and so we'd go to school, and, and one day my bag is missing. I used to fold it and wait, take it back to my mom the next day, and one day it's gone, and the teacher saw me running around. She said, what is it? And I told her, and she says, oh, I took the bag. And I said, well, give it back. She says, I can't. And she escorted me into this little room in the back, and my bag was all ripped up, floating in a basin of water. And I thought she'd gone berserk. I said, what, why did she destroy my bag? She says, no, look at this. And she pulled out a piece of the bag, dipped it into some paste and put it on a mold. First time I noticed it was an animal, it was a monkey. And I, and she, and, she, and I said, what is this? You know, and I, it was November already, early November. Couldn't be for Halloween. What's this for? And she says, well, it's a mask and we're making it for a play. And, uh, and it's a monkey. And I said, whoa, why is it a monkey? Well, it's, the, it's Christmas in the Jungle is the name of the play. The whole school's involved. We need two first graders to play monkeys. So I forgave her about the bag. <laughs> and the next week we had auditions and I got my first role in the theater, right? And so I got a costume that was better than my own clothes, quite frankly. It was a little red vest and uh, some green pants, a little tail, had red shoes, you know, cap. And the mask that she made from my mama's taco bag. At that point, when she dipped the paste into the, 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 the piece of bag into the paste, I discovered one of the principles of the universe. It's called paper mache. You can take any paper and, and make something. And so uh, I got this beautiful mask that she painted beautifully, and I loved it. I mean, I connected with it. I'd see myself in a mirror. I was larger than life, and I was looking forward to my debut before the world. The week of the show, I get home to the camp. My mother says, we're leaving tomorrow. It was like on a Tuesday. I said, but mom, the show's on Friday. And she says, I know. And she said, but we're being evicted. 
we've got to go. And so I cried and she cried with me. But the next morning at dawn, my dad got the truck going somehow and we left. And I'll never forget that it was a little community called Stratford in California, not Stratford on Avon, Stratford on the San Joaquin, you know, but, uh, we left, and I remember driving through the fog and seeing the school recede, and I felt this hole open in my chest, and that could have destroyed me at six, but what happened is I took the secret of paper mache with me, the desire to do theater, the un- unquenchable desire to do theater, and also residual anger because we had been evicted from the camp. So roughly 20 years later, I went to Cesar Chavez and proposed him an idea of a farm worker's theater. And these elements came together in my life. It uh, is absolutely amazing that an event like that, that one could forget, has defined your life. It is absolutely amazing. So you carried that through your your adolescence and interested in the art, the people uh, at the theater? It was my saving life, you know, my saving grace in my life that I had the arts, you know, because I could then plan stuff. I could make masks and puppets. I eventually became a puppeteer, you know, in my grandfather's garage. And uh, I'd be a ventriloquist in high school. I had a couple of dummies, an Anglo and a Mexican. So I was doing bilingual stuff. Your lips aren't moving right now. You can still do it. (laughs) (laughs) And And I actually ended up on television, live television in San Jose in 1956. No kidding. No kidding. Black and white television. I was in high school living on a dirt street in San Jose, but I was on TV on Sundays. You <laughs> did it? Uh, like your own show? Yeah. Well, no, I had five minutes of oh, a well, half, Five, of five a minutes of a show as far as I'm concerned. Five but, minutes of a half hour variety show, right? And it was in Spanish, but I was bilingual, so they allowed me to do English and Spanish, you know? And the, the two dummies talked to each other. And, and so it was amazing. I had an art director. I was 16. I didn't know anything, but at that point, I knew that there was a higher level. I could take my puppets to a higher level, and then eventually the puppets faded away, and I started thinking of actors, and I started thinking of plays, and and I became a playwright. I mean, all I ever wanted to be was a playwright. I could have become a nuclear physicist. That's what I was slated to become. I got my scholarship to San Jose State in, in 1958 on my strength in math and physics. I was a math and physics major for one year, straight A. I mentioned that because I, I don't look like a math and physics major. But in any case, uh, my love for the theater never went away. I used to go to Winchell's Donuts to do my math, and I had to go through the theater department at San Jose State, and I just lingered longer and longer at the theater department. Eventually, I said, the hell with it. I'm changing majors. I'm, I'm going to become an English major with an emphasis in playwriting. And so that's what I became. Uh, th- with um, the, the theater department, oh, so about the art about the people, a combination of both. When I fell into the theater, it was solely because of the people. I went to Summerstock when I was 15 years old, and uh, I had never been in a theater. I had never seen a show, um, but it was an opportunity for me to apprentice. It wasn't even a paid position. Uh, apprentice and work about 18 hours a day, which, you know, for me at that age, the idea of working 18 hours a day didn't interest me at all. But I loved the people I, I remember feeling, this is my tribe. They, they, they speak a language that I'm not fluent in, but that I, I love. They have an attitude that I admire. I, I know of no one else like this group of people, this tribe. I just have to be in it. That's, that was the turn for me. 
It's a global tribe. I mean, in my travels to the teatro, I've discovered that regardless of the language, we all speak the same theatrical language and that they're all, regardless of where the theater is, where the stage is, we've been in Europe, all over Western Europe, we've been in Mexico, we've been in Asia. And the fact is, once I get into a theater, I'm home. It doesn't matter. They're, oh, I, I connect here. This is it. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. So now, uh, Cesar Chavez, you went to him and said you wanted to create a theater in support of the um, union efforts at that time. Uh, uh, so tell us a little bit about th- that. How the, what was his reaction? Was he uh, go ahead and do it just because, you know, or did he get what you were going after at that time? Well, he told his immediate response when I suggested a theater of by four and four farm workers is he was very blunt. He said, well, he said, there's no money to do theater in Delano. There are no actors in Delano. There's no place to perform. There's no stage. There isn't many time to rehearse. He says, we're on the picket line day and night. You still want to do it. And I said, absolutely, Caesar. What an opportunity. Uh, I was going for the spirit. I, I also Delano was where I was born. I was born in Chinatown in Delano, and uh, half the strikers uh, in my family were members of my family, and the other half were scabs. You know, so I was in the middle of that struggle in that sense. Uh, but the fact is that uh, I came with a dream, and and I took whatever opportunity was there, and it was on the picket line. About a month in, they elected me picket captain, and so once I had control of the picket line, I could set up chants. I could get people up on top of the flatbed trucks, you know, to do stuff. And it was natural because I was the picket captain. So it, And then from there, we maneuvered and went into the weekly Friday night meetings. They'd give us 15 minutes at the end of all the business to do theater, to do actos, usually funny, uh, satirical stuff, but it was like a relief for people. They, they came, they packed the meetings because they wanted to see the Teatro Campesino. So, so you had a very distinct mission at that point, a very specific cause, uh, using theater to promote that, that idea. Uh, who, you were in charge of everything? You were writing it, you were directing it, you were setting up the, the, the stage? Was it a one-man band at that point? Well, uh, yeah, it, it, but I, I got some recruits early on, among them Agustin Lira, who played the guitar, so we had a musical component. He wasn't a bad actor, too. He was he was very dedicated, uh, a very angry young man, but, but very creative, a poet, really, at, at base. Uh, he was one of the founding members. Uh, we got my brother, Daniel, who's still with me, and my partner, and he he also played the guitar, so he joined me. He was very young. He was 17, uh, but getting in trouble as a juvenile in San Jose, so my mother says, take him, <laughs> get him out of here. And so he, he joined us, and uh, I, I had to... I had to train him, you know, to, to get into uh, the theater. He was a natural. And uh, Felipe Cantu, who was uh, the snake man in La Bamba, you know, I finally cast him in a movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he um, he was incredible. He brought a spirit. He was 47 years old. He was the old man of the company. But he brought a spirit from Mexico. He'd been a clown in Mexico. So he, he was a mime, you know, he, he, uh, not a trained mime, a natural mime. And so his, his humor lives to this day in the work of the Teatro Campesino. And there were others. I mean, to this day, there are others. We've been around for 53 years, and there are at least half a dozen people that have been with us 40 years and more. And some have aged within the company, and they're they're maestros in their own right, you know, as musicians or as teachers. But uh, we're family. That's another thing. That's a continuous kind of 
activity, you know, that, that our kids have had their kids. And so now the, those are the new members of the Teatro Campesino. But we're always adding people and always pushing people along. We've had people come and join the Teatro Campesino and end up at Yale Drama School. We've had people come and and join the teatro and end up in Hollywood. You know, we have people working in television. In other words, we've seeded, we have seeded the entertainment industry with new talent through where we are. We keep our doors open in San Juan Bautista because there are no other doors available nearby. And, and that's part of our mission to open an entrance, you know, where, where none exists at the mouth of the Salinas Valley so that uh, other farm workers can come through. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you have a, a base and you've uh, traveled the world with, with the company, uh, but I have to tell you the truth. Those of us in Los Angeles think you belong to us, <laughs> uh, and it's very true. Um, uh, certainly the, the theatrical community uh, has embraced, but in particular the um, greater community of Los Angeles uh, first, I think, a- acknowledged and really embraced you was with the original production of Zoot Suit. Here, um, back in the 70s. Can you tell us how that came to be? In 1973, um, Peter Brook came to San Juan Bautista with his company. And of the three months they spent in the United States that summer, two were in San Juan. And uh, we worked on uh, Conference of the Birds, which was a Sufi tale, on a Persian carpet. And these were trained individuals from all over the world that he had coalesced in Paris. And then we had the Teatro. And yet we came together. It was amazing through improvisations. So we worked on their piece and they worked on ours. The summer of 73 was particularly violent in, in the San Joaquin Valley, but we took them straight into the struggle. So there's Peter Brook and his actors, among whom was a 26-year-old blonde called Helen Mirren, <laughs> acting in the San Joaquin Valley in the context of the teatro. And the most amazing performance for farm workers of the... Conference of the Birds, a Sufi tale, was in Livingston, California, when a couple of, the weekend, a couple of farm workers had been killed on the picket line. And that play, the Sufi myth, that ancient Persian tale, suddenly fell into place with an impact that was tremendous because it it referred to the murder of the farm workers. And yet, it was a Sufi tale. And in, again, in Livingston, in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley. So, because we had, we were working with Peter. We also opened up, and Gordon Davidson came to visit us as a special guest. And he became very aware of the Teatro Campesino. And so shortly after that, he invited the Teatro Campesino to come and perform one of our signature pieces, the Carpa de los Rascuachis, the Tent of the Underdogs, on the taper stage. And we had um, a three-day, four-day run or something, but we packed the house, and he saw the potential. So in 1977, when he was setting up the new Theater for Now uh, series, he invited me to uh, come talk to him about a play about Los Angeles history. And we both arrived almost instantaneously at the same thought. Let's do the Pachucos. In 68, the teatro had been performing at the Ash Grove over here on Melrose, and uh, David Sanchez, the leader of the Brombres, had brought me a pamphlet written in the 1940s by Guy Endor, a Hollywood screenwriter, called The Sleepy Lagoon Murder Mystery. And it was about the Sleepy Lagoon case. And I, it was 1968. I paged through this thing, and I said, this is unnatural. This is a play. But it's 1968. Martin Luther King had just been murdered. We were working on the Bobby Kennedy campaign, and they killed him. It was not a time for me to put, you know, step aside and start writing a play. So I shelved it for uh, nine years. In 1977, when I talked to Caesar, uh, to 
uh, Gordon, uh, he, um, he, he, he suggested the Pachucos, and I said, I have, I have that material. I want to do this. So I pulled out the pamphlet, and that was the beginning of my research. Diane Rodriguez and her husband, Jose Delgado, were members of the Teatro, and they were my creative team. They were my Google team. <laughs> we had no Google then. <laughs> but they helped me to do the research to amass mounds of books and informations and articles. And, of course, I was working on an old Smith Corona typewriter. I had no computer. There weren't any. Uh, in 78 and 77, but I managed to pull all this information together and, and created uh, the first draft, which we called Baby Zoot, uh, in the spring of 78 and uh, for the new theater for now. It was, a, it was rough going, I'll tell you. It was a new experience. I had more than one play. One was a character called Yamaguchi's Ghost, that was part of the early Zoot version because Henry Levas's father, and he was the inspiration for the gang leader, had also taken over the ranch of a Japanese farmer in City of Commerce here in Southern California. And I said, oh, I know that reality. I'm going to write it into the play. And I realized very shortly, this is a totally separate play. So I pulled it aside. I said, I'll come back to it. I didn't come back to it until 2013 when I was finally able to sit down and start writing Valley of the Heart. In the meantime, I had to learn more about the Japanese. I had to take another 30 years to study Japanese culture. And in the way that I like people to study Mexican culture with respect and, and attention to detail. And that work is still continuous. I mean, it, uh, the Japanese community, like every community, is complex. They have their own issues. But I want to be respectful. And so... Uh, at first, I had asked uh, Jeannie Wakatsugi Houston, the, one of the uh, uh, who wrote Farewell to Manzanar, if she would co-write this play with me and about 20 years ago. And she said, sure, I'll help you. Finally, I, I, she was busy and I said, well, I got to take it on myself. That's why it took until 2013. And then I was capable of, uh, I think, beginning to portray the Japanese-American family. And you were capable because of uh, research or information or maturity as a writer? What, when you say maturity you and also befriending Japanese-Americans, you know, on a personal level and asking them about this and that, about their parents. And, you know, I have friends I could mention, but the fact is that uh, I knew ultimately it had to be a love story because... Uh, that's what it's all about. You, you, all drama, I think, is based on that, you know, regardless of gender. I mean, it's, it's if we can respect each other uh, to the point where we can love each other, then there's a lot of human traction there. There's, a, there's an tra attraction, attraction and traction at the same time. And so uh, in that sense, it, it took me 20 years to arrive to that point. And uh, fortunately, ever since then, since 2013, we've had also people that have... Uh, offered their opinions and their suggestions, and I've taken them. I'm open to it, right? Masashimoto, who's a professor and teacher up in, in Watsonville, has been very helpful, and his wife, Marsha, they're, they're Japanese-Americans. They, he teaches about the Japanese-American experience, so he's been one of my, my consultants, you know, very important. Yeah. Uh, why don't we give a, a, a capsule um, snapshot review of what the play is about, and then we can talk a little bit more about the specifics. So what's the big arching story? Well, what's interesting, it begins on December 6th, 1941, and ends on September 10th, 2001. So the night before Pearl Harbor and the day before 9-11. 
So it's a complete cycle in terms of the story. I wanted to touch those two points in American history. But basically, it's in the 1940s. It's during World War II. And it's a love story between uh, the farm, uh, the daughter of a Japanese farmer, Issei, first-generation Issei farmer. Her name is Thelma. Um, but uh, Teruko, really, is her Japanese name. And the son, the eldest son of a Mexican-American sharecropping family that lives on, on the ranch. So somewhat based upon some of your experience. Well, it, again, uh, when we produced uh, in 19... 19- 47, I was seven years old, a family moved down the street from us in a little town called Early Mart next to Delano. And they were migrant farm workers and uh, a playmate. I found a new playmate my age. I thought he was Filipino, frankly, we started playing. But one day he invited me over to his house and it wasn't a house, it was a shack. We all lived in shacks. But the kitchen was a little cardboard lean-to. And I was shocked that his mother was Japanese. She was not a Filipino. You know, he, his father was Mexican. Uh, Benjamin, and his mother was Japanese-American. Her name was Thelma. So there's Benjamin and Thelma. It was my first taste, literally, of Japanese culture. Uh, She cooked like my mom. She cooked Mexican food like my mom. But she also cooked Japanese food that I had never tasted before. My first taste of a rice ball was from her hands. And I never forgot that. And I never forgot my friend Esteban. They moved away after the end of the summer. It was just one short summer. But uh, I kept that in mind and and really nurtured that idea. Uh, and so when I came to write Ballet of the Heart, I named the lovers Benjamin and Thelma. We performed the first workshop production in 2013 in San Jose. A couple came to see it. And after the show, they asked, why did you name your lovers Benjamin and Thelma? And I told them this story. And I said, why did you ask? And they said, well, we had cousins that were named Benjamin and Thelma. And I said, did they have a son named Esteban, Stephen? They said, yes, they did. Oh, my God. And it turned out that it was that family. And uh, the, But Benjamin and Thelma had since passed away, and my friend Esteban had just died of prostate cancer. But his wife, his kids, his grandchildren, his brother, his sister, they all came to see the play. And we're in contact with them again, and they're going to come see the play here in L.A. Now, it's not their story. It's not really Benjamin and Thelma. I just borrowed the names. But in, in, in that general sense, it is their story. It's the story of all the Japanese Americans that were incarcerated. And, and they've been so great about it. They've been very helpful in terms of anything we've asked them to do. Uh, but in any case, this is a story about real life, my life. Uh, like all playwrights, it's better to write about your own life in every way that you can. And these are math, massive, epic themes that somehow have occurred in my life, and that's all right. You know, it, it, I'm, I acknowledge them for what they are. The context of our life has to be as broad as we can make it in order to understand the little picayune really puzzling stuff that happens to us. If you just understand a little about the history around you, it'll help alleviate some of the confusion, you know, in your life. So that's what playwrights can do. I think we, we provide a very basic service, which is we allow people to experience something by going through the heart to the mind and affecting, again, the way that people think about themselves and the world. Uh, 
And so that's the purpose of Valley of the Heart. It's very much about the heart, but it's also about the mind. It has been a pleasure talking to you, and clearly for all of us here at Santa Theater Group and Los Angeles. Um, we're so happy to have you with us. We're proud of your career from the age of six until now. <laughs> we expect more out of you in the future. I'm um, still sick. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's it. I know. Uh, I really want to thank you for um, for sharing some of that with us, and but most particularly for your body of work in this particular piece, which resonates, although it's set largely in the 1940s, it resonates so perfectly for today here in America. It's an American play by a great American playwright. So thank you. Thank you, Michael, and thank uh, CTG for all of their wonderful help and inspiration. You've been listening to 30 to Curtain, a Santa Theater Group podcast. You can find out more about Valley of the Heart, our organization, and upcoming productions on our website at centertheatergroup.org. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists. What they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.